Chapter 26 of The Dog Crusoe and His Master. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Allison Hester of Athens, Georgia. The Dog Crusoe and His Master by R. M. Ballantyne. Chapter 26. Anxious Fears Followed by a Joyful Surprise safe home at last, and happy hearts. One fine afternoon, a few weeks after the storm of which we have given an account in the last chapter, old Mrs. Varley was seated beside her own chimney corner in the little cottage by the lake, gazing at the glowing logs with the earnest expression of one whose thoughts were far away. Her kind face was paler than usual, and her hands rested idly on her knee, grasping the knitting wires to which was attached a half-finished stocking. On a stool near to her sat young Marston, the lad to whom, on the day of the shooting match, Dick Varley had given his old rifle. The boy had an anxious look about him as he lifted his eyes from time to time to the widow's face. "'Did you say, my boy, that they were all killed?' inquired Mrs. Varley, awaking from her reverie with a deep sigh. "'Every one,' replied Marston. "'Jim Scraggs, who bought the news, said they was all lying dead with their scalps off. They was a party of white men.' Mrs. Varley sighed again, and her face assumed an expression of anxious pain as she thought of her son Dick being exposed to his similar fate. Mrs. Varley was not given to nervous fears, but as she listened to the boy's recital of the slaughter of a party of white men, news of which had just reached the valley, her heart sank, and she prayed inwardly to him, who is the husband of the widow, that her dear one might be protected from the ruthless hand of the savage. After a short pause, during which young Marston fidgeted about and looked concerned, as if he had something to say which he would fain leave unsaid, Mrs. Varley continued, "'Was it far off where the bloody deed was done?' "'Yes, three weeks off, I believe. "'And Jim Scragg said he found a knife that looked like the one that belonged to—to—' to... "'The lad hesitated. "'To whom, my boy? Why don't she go on?' "'To your son, Dick.' "'The widow's hands dropped by her side, "'and she would have fallen had not Marston caught her. "'Oh, mother dear, don't take on like that.' he cried, smoothing down the widow's hair as her head rested on his breast. For some time, Mrs. Varley suffered the boy to fondle her in silence, while her breast labored with anxious dread. "'Tell me all,' she said at last, recovering a little. "'Did, did Jim see Dick?' "'No,' answered the boy. "'He looked at all the bodies, but he didn't find his, so he sent me over here to tell ye that perhaps he escaped.' Mrs. Varley breathed more freely and earnestly, thank God. But her fears soon returned when she thought of his being a prisoner and recalled the tales of terrible cruelty often related of the savages. While she was still engaged in closely questioning the lad, Jim Scraggs himself entered the cottage and endeavored in a gruff sort of way to reassure the widow. "'You see, mistress,' he said, "'Dick is an uncommon tough customer.' And if he could only get fifty yards start, there's not an engine in the West as could get hold of him again. So don't be taken on. But what if he's been taken prisoner? said the widow. Aye, 
that's just what I've come about. You see, it's not unlikely he's being took. So about 30 other lads of the valley are ready just now to start away and give the red reptiles chase. And I come to tell ye, so keep up hot, mistress. With this parting word of comfort, Jim withdrew, and Marston soon followed, leaving the widow to weep and pray in solitude. Meanwhile, an animated scene was going on near the blockhouse. Here, thirty of the young hunters of the Mustang Valley were assembled, actively engaged in supplying themselves with powder and lead, and tightening their girths, preparatory to setting out in pursuit of the Indians who had murdered the white men, while hundreds of boys and girls, and not a few matrons, crowded round and listened to the conversation and to the deep threats of vengeance that were uttered ever and anon by the younger men. Major Hope, too, was among them. The worthy Major, unable to restrain his roving propensities, determined to revisit the Mustang Valley, and had arrived only two days before. Backwoodsmen's preparations are usually of the shortest and simplest. In a few minutes, the cavalcade was ready, and away they went towards the prairies, with the bold Major at their head. But their journey was destined to come to an abrupt and unexpected close. A couple of hours' gallop brought them to the edge of one of those open plains which sometimes break up the woodland near the verge of the great prairies. It stretched out like a green lake toward the horizon, on which, just as the band of horsemen reached it, the sun was descending in a blaze of glory. With a shout of enthusiasm, several of the younger members of the party sprang forward into the plain at a gallop, but the shout was mingled with one of a different tone from the older men. Hist! Hello! Hold on, you catamounts! There's engines ahead! The whole band came to a sudden halt at this cry, and watched eagerly, and for some time in silence, the motions of a small party of horsemen who were seen in the far distance, like black specks on the golden sky. "'They come this way, I think,' said Major Hope, after gazing steadfastly at them for some minutes. Several of the old hands signified their assent to this suggestion by a grunt, although, to unaccustomed eyes, the objects in question looked more like crows than horsemen, and their motion was, for some time, scarcely perceptible. "'I sees pack-horses among them,' cried young Marston in an excited tone, "'and there's three riders, but there's something else, only what it be I can't tell.' "'Ye've sharp eyes, younker,' remarked one of the men, "'and I do believe you're right.' Presently the horsemen approached, and soon there was a brisk fire of guessing as to who they could be. It was evident that the strangers observed the cavalcade of white men, and regarded them as friends, for they did not check the headlong speed at which they approached. In a few minutes they were clearly made out to be a party of three horsemen driving pack-horses before them, and something which some of the hunters guessed was a buffalo calf. Young Marston guessed, too, but his guess was different. Moreover, it was uttered with a yell that would have done credit to the fiercest of all the savages. Crusoe! he shouted, while at the same moment he brought his whip down heavily on the flank of his little horse and sprang over the prairie like an arrow. One of the approaching horsemen was far ahead of his comrades and seemed as if encircled with the flying and falling voluminous mane of his magnificent horse. <laughs> gasped Marston in a low tone to himself as he flew along. Crusoe, 
I'd know ye dog among thousand, a buffalo calf. Ha! Get on with ye. This last part of the remark was addressed to his horse and was followed by a whack that increased the pace considerably. The space between two such riders was soon devoured. Hello, Dick! Dick Varley! Hey, why Marston, my boy? The friends reined up so suddenly that one might have fancied they had met like the knights of old in the shock of mortal conflict. Is it yourself, Dick Varley? Dick held out his hand, and his eyes glistened, but he could not find words. Marston seized it, and pushing his horse close up, vaulted nimbly off and alighted on Charlie's back behind his friend. Off you go, Dick. I'll take you to your mother. Without reply, Dick shook the reins, and in another minute was in the midst of the hunters. To the numberless questions that were put to him, he only waited to shout aloud, "'We're all safe. They'll tell you all about it,' he added, pointing to his comrades, who were now close at hand, and then, dashing onward, made straight for home, with little Marston clinging to his waist like a monkey. Charlie was fresh, and so was Crusoe, so you may be sure it was not long before they all drew up opposite the door of the widow's cottage. Before Dick could dismount, Marston had slipped off and was already in the kitchen. "'Here's Dick, mother!' The boy was an orphan and loved the widow so much that he had come at last to call her mother. Before another word could be uttered, Dick Varley was in the room. Marston immediately stepped out and softly shut the door. Reader, we shall not open it. Having shut the door, as we have said, Marston ran down to the edge of the lake and yelled with delight, usually terminating each paroxysm with the Indian war-whoop with which he was well acquainted. Then he danced, and then he sat down on a rock, and became suddenly aware that there were other hearts there, close beside him, as glad as his own. Another mother of the Mustang Valley was rejoicing over a long-lost son. Crusoe and his mother, Fan, were scampering round each other in a manner that evinced powerfully the strength of their mutual affection. Talk of holding converse. Every hair on Crusoe's body, every motion of his limbs, was eloquent with silent language. He gazed into his mother's mild eyes as if he would read her inmost soul, supposing that she had one. He turned his head to every possible angle and cocked his ears to every conceivable elevation and rubbed his nose against fans and barked softly in every imaginable degree of modulation and varied these proceedings by bounding away at full speed over the rocks of the beach and in among the bushes and out again, but always circling round and round fan and keeping her in view. It was a sight worth seeing, and young Marston sat down on a rock, deliberately and enthusiastically, to gloat over it. But perhaps the most remarkable part of it has not yet been referred to. There was yet another heart there that was glad, exceedingly glad that day. It was a little one, too, but it was big for the body that held it. Grumps was there, and all that Grumps did was to sit on his haunches and stare at Fan and Crusoe, and wag his tail as well as he could in so awkward a position. Grumps was evidently bewildered with delight, and had lost nearly all power to express it. 
Crusoe's conduct towards him, too, was not calculated to clear his faculties. Every time he chanced to pass near Grumps in his elephantine gambles, he gave him a passing touch with his nose, which always knocked him head over heels, whereat Grumps invariably got up quickly and wagged his tail with additional energy. Before the feelings of those canine friends were calmed, they were all three ruffled into a state of comparative exhaustion. Then young Marston called Crusoe to him, and Crusoe, obedient to the voice of friendship, went, "'Are you happy, my dog?' "'You're a stupid fellow to ask such a question. However, it's an amiable one. Yes, I am.' "'What do you want, you bundle of hair?' This was addressed to Grumps, who came forward innocently and sat down to listen to the conversation. On being thus sternly questioned, the little dog put down his ears flat and hung its head, looking up at the same time with a deprecatory look as if to say, "'Oh, dear, I beg pardon. I only want to sit near Crusoe, please. But if you wish, I'll go away, sad and lonely, with my tail very much between my legs. Indeed, I will. Only say the word, but, but I'd rather stay if I might.' "'Poor Bundle!' said Marston, patting its head. "'You stay, then. Hooray, Crusoe! Are you happy, I say? Does your heart bound in you like a cannonball that wants to find its way out and can't, eh?' Crusoe put his snout against Marston's cheek, and, in the excess of his joy, the lad threw his arms round the dog's neck and hugged it vigorously, a piece of impulsive affection, which that noble animal bore with characteristic meekness, and which Grumps regarded with idiotic satisfaction." End of chapter 26